is very true. Next Sunday, uh, Daylight Savings, you lose an hour, which is great because we'll have a, a, a lot of uh, people showing up for this service that thought they were going uh, to other services. But we are so glad to hear it. You know, when you talk about restaurants, do you have a favorite restaurant in L.A.? Someone asked me that. Do I have a favorite restaurant? I, any restaurant to me that says deep fried is my favorite restaurant there as we go there. You know, the uh guy, philosopher, comedian, Stephen Wright, you know this guy, he had a great line. He said, he went to a restaurant that said, we serve breakfast at any time, so I ordered French toast during the Renaissance. <laughs> Some of you will get that probably in about four years. But at what time, and we see, is the time for us to understand who God is? And the answer is obviously all time. Last week, as we said, Jesus, think with the eyes of the crowd looking at him. He was a remarkable man. He was doing miracles that nobody had ever seen. He spoke like they had never heard. And yet he makes these outlandish statements about who he thinks he is. And nothing rocked their world more than when he said, before Abraham was, I am. We saw last week when God spoke out of the burning bush to Moses. And Moses said, what is your name? We know you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what do you call yourself? And God said, Ichyeh, Asher, Ichyeh. Y-H-W-H, those four letters. We say Yahweh. It's such a holy name that the Jews after the exile would no longer speak it, but just say Adonai, meaning Lord or Hashem, the name. But Jesus boldly stands and says, I am. Jesus never claimed to be the Father. He never once. And yet he says this bizarre thing that he is fully divine in flesh and blood like you and I. And in these I am statements in the Gospel of John, we get this tantalizing and revealing insight into the person and the work of Christ. And when we come, as he stands here, the only miracle that all four, it's actually a set of miracles, gospel writers write, Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then walking on the waves of the disciples in the boat. All four of them recorded. That it's an enacted parable. By that, he is preaching by the actions he is doing. And he, Jesus is saying to them as he feeds them, the problem is not that you and I are hungry. The problem is what we're eating. The problem is not that we are thirsty. The problem is what we're drinking. And Jesus said, I don't know the answer to life. He flat out said, I am the answer to life. And when you and I, as we begin to realize that God cares about our physical hunger, yes, in fact, tonight, you and I live in the hunger capital of the United States. More people go to bed hungry in Los Angeles than any city in America. That's why we have our digs and things available in our outreach to be able to reach out with a, a drive for food to helping people on the way out. But, and, and it's impossible for us to call ourselves followers of Christ and not care for people that we can reach. In fact, the rabbi, rabbis had a great line. Ein lechem, ein Torah. No bread, no teaching. That means if you're starving to death, you can't listen spiritually to what's going on. And God cares about that. But Jesus, when he says, I'm the bread of life, he's not saying I'm a loaf of wonder bread. He is saying there's something that you're starving for even more. And some of the people that are the most famished tonight are not the little kids under the viaducts out here. It's the people going to bed in Beverly Hills. The wealthy of us are by far starving to death spiritually faster than anybody else. And we have this hole in our gut and we are famished. And we try to fill it with all the rotting leftovers of this world when the bread of life himself stands there, ready to fill, satiate anybody that will let him. 
And as you and I, as we realize the child of Bethlehem, house of bread, Bethlehem is the bread of life. It's the stuff that life that we hang on. The bread of life for you and me or anybody, and those watching online, is whatever you dine on that makes life worth living. And whoever comes to Christ will never hunger again. Let's turn back real quick and take a look at this passage in Exodus in the 16th chapter on page 55 in your pew Bible. The problem is not that we think that we don't get things to eat. We don't get what we want. We don't get how much we want. A uh, father was sharing with me that were, were your parents pretty strict about manners at the table when you were there. Uh, he was saying they were trying to teach his son manners and a little boy was helping him after they had some dinner guests over. And after dinner, a little boy was taking cut up pie from mom to the guest. So he came to dad and gave him the first piece and his dad took it and handed it to a guest. Little boy kind of walked out, got another piece of pie, brought it to his dad, and his dad gave him to another guest. Little boy went and got another piece of pie, and before he handed it to his dad, he said, Dad, it's no use. They're all the same size. <laughs> and most of us, we think that we're waiting for this bigger piece. And this is where, look at in the 16th chapter, verse 1. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Now, I'm telling you where they are journeying. And last Lent, when we studied the book of Numbers, we know there's camping out here right after Sinai. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Why are they mad at Moses and Aaron? Because they took a risk on these guys and this God who did this remarkable. He parted the Red Sea. But the Israelites said, if only we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by flesh pots, that's like stew, and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. One month in, one month in, and they're saying, we bet on the wrong horse. What is it in our natural human fallenness that we complain the way we do. This is different than processing or expressing need. This is flat out bringing accusation against God's leaders and really against God. My dad had an expression. I still don't get it. Maybe you can help me. When we were complaining a lot of the three boys of us, that he would say, you kids would complain if you were hung with a new rope. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> but... All of us in our hearts, we just have this sense of, as they say, today's extravaganza is tomorrow's expectation. Man, this is true of the American culture. We do something extravagant, we're going, wow, just set the bar there. Everything below that is less. God does great things in our life. A couple times we go, wow, better be there tomorrow. And we start to, if you will, adapt to this whole thing and I had this friend who had this obnoxious saying in junior high. My name's Jimmy. Give me all you can give me. You know, and I think that's what a lot of us. It's kind of like, how can I milk out of you in this world everything that I need? And so they're complaining. And look what the Lord says, verse 4. And the Lord, remember, anytime you see L-O-R-D capitalized, that's the tetragrammaton, those four letters of God's name, said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people should go out and gather enough for that day. And that way I will test them whether they will follow my instruction. And on the sixth day, when they prepare, what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. And so what God is doing is saying, and He brings this bread from heaven. And no one really knows what God physically used for this. The word manna, could be manu, means, what is it? Have you ever said you sat down at someone's house and said, manna? 
what is it? And it's like this kind of bread, kind of disrupt. They go out and they collect. If you collect too much, it sours in a day. But on Friday, before Shabbat, Sabbath, they could collect enough to last two days because you're not supposed to work on Sabbath. So God says, I will bring you and I will give you meat in the evening. And we'll find out in the book of Numbers, he will drive in these quail. And the Bedouins today still go after these huge migratory birds. And I will give you bread in the morning and I will give it to you. Why is he saying that? Because we forget who gives. It's not the gift of the lover. It's the love behind the giver. If you who are parents put all the clothes and all the money and all the food at the end of the hall and you say to your kids, God bless, they'll take care of themselves, but they'll never know it's from you. It's when you have to pull out your wallet and give that money to them that they know you are the one that is caring for them. God could give us everything we want right now. But we would never know it was from Him. And that's always the temptation is to put ourselves, you shall love the Lord your God first and your neighbor as yourself. To reverse that is called idolatry. And even in our family, if we put them before the Lord, then we are setting them up for failure. What do you mean putting them before the Lord? It means saying that when you know what God wants and you tell your family, but you transcend this, Well, that's a biblical expression. You're in trouble there. And so as the Lord comes and He says, I will give this and then you'll know that it is me. Why do we get hungry? Well, we get hungry for a lot of reasons. I can tell you the physiology behind hunger. Of course, you get stomach contractions that are going on. Your glucose sugar drops down and you're actually hungry. There's something called the paraventricle hypothalamus, part of your lower brain, that actually tells you what you crave. That's why when women are pregnant, it gets a little weirder. But you know, when you want a steak, it's your paraventricle hypothalamus telling you that you need protein. That's why it likes sugar, because it's easy to break down. And all of us have these different set points. Some people that metabolize extremely well make fat better than others. In fact, evolutionary biologists would tell you, these are the people a thousand years ago that would have survived the best, because they're so efficient at breaking down food. I would have lived 300 years, I should tell you that. But... Do we get hungry because of physical reasons? What about psychological reasons? Like if I started to right now show a picture and explain to you one of God's great gifts, Cinnabon. (laughs) And the butter just running down the side and a hot cup of coffee, you'd say, worship is over, we're out of here. Because you can stimulate, that's what appetizer is all about, is stimulating. Sometimes we hunger for relationships that way. And the trouble is when we hunger for food, comfort food, You know when you've had a hard day, you know, some popcorn or mashed potatoes or popcorn and potatoes, you know, whatever it is, that is kind of pleasing yourself. And now it's just America struggling with obesity, but bulimia and anorexia is rampant. By far one of the hardest psychological illnesses to treat. Eating disorders are by far one of the hardest there are to break that are out there. And the trouble is that food becomes the enemy rather than the helper. The means in the end gets lost. We hunger for things. What is the bread of life to us? Sometimes there's relationship. If only I could find a love. <laughs> I did a wedding a little while ago. This guy told me something I never thought of. He says every time he's at a wedding, he tells people he's divorced and not that he's never been married so they won't think there's something the matter with him. I never thought of that. The sense of saying that if you're single, well, there must be some problem with you. And yet we long for that. Is there any spiritual eating disorders? We consume vast knowledge. You have more gifts and 
talents, resources out there to know the Word of God and study. Oh, my goodness. I would have sold my family to have, well, to have the things that you have available out there. We know more, and but we digest so little. You know, one of the problems with cancer, some of the dying diseases that are out there, is that you consume, but you can't break it down and assimilate it. And spiritually, it's not how much you know of this book. It's how much you let this book integrate into our life. And that's what God is talking about. Well, what do Americans think is the bread of life? If you ask the average American, what is our values? We as Americans will say, well, we value family and we value freedom and we value uh, friendship. I was reading this last week, the Washington International Center. For 50 years, they've been immig- helping immigrants to assimilate into American culture. And they asked immigrants, several million of them from other cultures the last 50 years, what do Americans value so they can teach them that? This is what they think. First of all, we value personal control of our life. Americans don't do well when options are taken away. Second of all, we value change more than tradition. A lot of other cultures, tradition's important, uh, not for Americans. We, it's just interesting. Immigrants say we value time. We value being on time. When we were in Africa, Pastor James said to me, I'd heard before, he said, you know, Pastor Mark, he said, you Americans, all of you have watches and none of you have time. You know, we love, we're obsessed about our time and our schedules and we value money. Immigrants say that this culture values money more than any culture on the planet. The bread of life to a lot of us is technology. I had a little discussion with somebody a few weeks ago, a little forum setting, and he basically said technology is the bread of life. He didn't say it that way. He said technology ultimately will solve all of our problems. If you have the right technology, it will become, in that sense, savior to us. And he wanted to know, how do you believe? Like, do you believe in these actual miracles? And he said, no, he believed in science. You know, next Sunday night, we're going to have a a great gathering here uh, that we have, first of all, uh, Dr. Uh, Rich Mao from President of Fuller Seminary is going to be here. Rabbi Mark Diamond, who is uh, oversees the Rabbinic Council of 310 uh, rabbis, just a lovely man. He's going to be here as well as Dr. Daryl Falk, who is a well-known international biologist. And I said, we'll be talking about the question of origins. And what's going to come up at that discussion is people always ask you, do you believe in science or do you believe in God? Kind of like it's this dichotomy. You have to choose one or the other. And that, by the way, is a false dichotomy. Charles Darwin, this gentleman is a very recognizable face to you that we have on this slide of this. Before Darwin ever got on the Beagle and started sailing to the Galapagos, and there's a belief that this man here is the one that all of a sudden there was these superstition about belief in God. Darwin appeared and liberating atheism was born. And so now you either believe in science that explains everything or evolution or you believe in God, which is a false dichotomy. Darwin, by the way, believed in a philosophy that was started in the 3rd century B.C., actually the 4th century. A gentleman by the name of Epicurus. Epicurean you've probably heard of. Epicurus was a Greek philosopher and he was tired of the gods always meddling, the bully gods of the pantheon of Greece. In fact, the gods, if you didn't do right, that you would later on be burned. Very similar to a biblical understanding of judgment. He says, no, look what he says. We should look for someone to eat and drink with before we look for the thing to eat or drink. Otherwise, we're no different than the wolf or the dog. What he meant was, 
social friendship and dining together is what life is all about. That's where you get Epicurean from. But he said the gods are not capable to take away evil from the world or are capable but not willing. Either way, why call them a god? Fascinating. So here, this is where, and by the way, the atomic theory comes from this era of Greece. And the idea is there's these random atoms out there and they just hit whatever they do. There's no gods. There's no life after death. So eat, drink, and be happy. In fact, uh, the new atheists, like Dawkins that is out there, you know, last year they had on their bus campaign around London, they had a big poster that said, there probably is no God, quit worrying, have a good day. You know who they're quoting? This boy. And it kind of passed away until the Romans came into the town and another philosopher named Lucretus came along and he picks up on this likewise. And he's again against this bully in the sky, these ideas of these gods, that you take care of yourself. And he said, quote, religion prompts the most evils. Fear is the mother of all gods. Nature does all things by herself spontaneously without the meddling of the gods. It's about 60 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And the point saying this idea that you have to choose today, we believe in science and we believe in its laws, or you believe in God but you can't believe in both, is craziness. And don't take the bait on that. When we were in Belfast, a gentleman had told me the story and I had heard that a gentleman was there from New Delhi, an Indian, and he walked into the wrong neighborhood when they were having the troubles between the Catholics and the Protestants. Someone stopped him and said, are you a Catholic or a Protestant? He said, I'm a Hindu. And he said, all right, are you a Catholic Hindu or a Protestant Hindu? <laughs> and then when the world tries to say, well, what, either you're a, you are an atheist scientist or you're a fundamentalist six-day creationist, but you can't be both. Don't take the bait on that. And that's, and that's where Jesus comes along. And I believe why we're, we're about to read. Well, not only does God, I believe, yes, provide for them in the wilderness. But Jesus, who is God, the Son in flesh, just spends his normal order of doing things at times, not just to fill their bellies, but to reveal something of who he is. Turn with me over to, let's look at that passage again. John, the sixth chapter on page 867 in your pew Bible. N.T. Wright, who is a great philosopher from a University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and he contributes with Biologus with this conference that we're having. He, for a while, led tours in uh, Westminster Abbey. And you know, Darwin is buried there. And he said one time that a woman came in here and said, is Charles Darwin buried here? And he said, yes, ma'am. And by the way you walked, you just walked over him. And she said, good. And the interesting thing is why this anger at this sense, and it's just trying to force these different... And again, this idea, you know, remember the, in the 1960s, that was a great posters out there. This, Nietzsche said, God is dead. Someone said, came out, Nietzsche, God is dead. Then they came with a poster, God, Nietzsche's dead, I'm okay. <laughs> but here in the sixth chapter, Jesus just fed the 5,000. He has walked on the water to them. And look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures for eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Pause. He walks across. Remember, he gets in the boat. 
with the disciples and they go to the other side. The next day, the crowd that he had just fed went, where is he? We heard he's in Tiberias and they went running around. Jesus said, you know why you're here? It's not because you saw me do things that blew your mind. You want a meal. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for that which endures and do eternal life. So they realize he's going spiritual on them, so they try to out-spiritualize him. They said to him, 28, What must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said, what should we be doing to God's will, knowing that when the Messiah comes in the kingdom, God will tell us what to do? What does God want me to do? If God could right now text or tweet or email to you, I want you to do this today. Wouldn't we do it? Of course we would. And so they're saying, what does God want us to do? Because Jesus wasn't acting like they thought the Messiah would. And he says, here's what God wants you to do. Nothing. You believe in me. And I'll do it through you. It's not about you doing, being good boys and girls and chinning yourself up to what God wants. It's allowing me to come through. And so they continue on and they say, well, how can this be? And jumping over to verse 41, he said, I am the bread of life, which you already read. 41, the Jews began to complain, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say I've come down from heaven? Jesus said, do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then drop down, look what he says in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus says, you can't put two and two together and figure out that I'm the Messiah unless my Father draws you. Interesting, the same term that Jeremiah and Isaiah both use when God says, I will draw you unto myself. Jesus said, when the Father calls you, that's when you want to respond. You can't figure this out on your own. And I am the bread of life, and the bread I will give is my flesh. And they go, he has gone mashugana. He is out of his mind. 52. The Jews disputed themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like what your ancestors ate. They died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. A very shocking image, but a beautiful reality. What Jesus is saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, parasitas is the Greek word for that. We get parasite from that. When a mother is nursing their child, and that child is literally living off of the mother, that is parasitas. And what Jesus is saying, unless you come and eat my flesh, he doesn't mean physically. He means my life. And I live because the Father does. And when you come to me, then you're caught into this love relationship. And my life is unstoppable in you. Just, my Catholic brothers and sisters and Orthodox will think that this table, literally the elements are transformed in the body and blood of Christ. We as Protestant Presbyterians, the Reformed tradition, believe that nothing happens to the bread or to the juice. 
But that literally the presence of Christ is here, the virtual presence sealing us. And when you partake of this, when you're standing in line, something different happens, I totally believe. Jesus says, why are you going for the wrong bread? The wealth at this time of Rome was unbelievable. Pliny tells us Caligula, one of the emperors, gives a party that is worth two-thirds of the income of Rome for a year. It was that extravagant. They were dining on peacock tongues. You know how many peacock tongues it takes to feed people? Some of the women came, Pliny said, in robes that were so embellished with jewels, they cost in today's money 10 to $20 million in outfit. The wealth of upper Rome was unbelievable in all their decadence. And Jesus said, but they are starving on the inside. Why do you labor for stuff that perishes? Why don't you labor for that which lasts forever, which I will simply give to you? And that's when he says to them, and this is just so hard to believe. Look at verse 60. When his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Jesus said, being aware of they were complaining, said, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He looks at him and he says, so this is a tough saying? What if you saw me right now go up to heaven and come back down? Then you think you believe? No, you just believe I could do that. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken are spirit and life. But among you some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who would betray him. He said, for this reason I have told you that no one comes to me unless granted him by the Father. Because of this many of his disciples turned back and no longer went with him. I... Uh, Toddler, granddaughter, last month I was trying to explain to her because she's so good at, you know, already, you know, the texting and stuff, but explaining to her why when the phone's turned off, it doesn't work anymore. And I realized she had the technological comprehension that I have, and so we didn't do that anymore. (laughs) Trying to explain to a toddler cellular transmission is what Jesus is saying here to them. You don't have the brain power to get what I'm trying to say to you. But you understand what I'm communicating to you. You come to me and you will never hunger. You come to me and you'll never thirst. Not in the ways that you're thinking of, but in the ways that you long for. And Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, could not understand. Jesus could not be the Messiah because it says in Scripture, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a cross, on a tree. It's a sign of God's cursing. And then it dawned on him. He was cursed for me in my place. Sometimes when we go through life, we say, God is with you and I'll pray for you. And people going through tough times say, yeah, whatever. Reverend Tucker at the Chicago Salvation Army downtown was up front preaching and talking about to these guys and gals and their tough luck and saying, you know, God will be with you and God takes care of me and he'll take care of you. And afterwards, a man came up to him and said, my wife was murdered last week. And when you lose your wife and your babies are crying out for their mama and she's not coming home, then you can tell me this Jesus stuff. Tucker said, I understand your grief and hurt and I'll pray for you. Two weeks later, Tucker's wife was killed. And he came back that Friday night. And he said to the men and women gathered there, I hurt and my kids long to see their mom. But I tell you, Jesus is the bread of life. 
For those of you who don't know that my story, then those who do, that I have lost a fiancé killed by another man and all, both my brothers, my father, all of our grandparents, and two of my best friends to death. I have had people betray me like you. I had dreams that I thought God would do that I handed, and they busted in front of me. And I still tell you, Jesus is the bread of life. If you dine on him, you will not hunger. Once, yeah. Broken, yes. Are we a mess? Of course we are. That's why you live in L.A. (laughs) Do we have all the things we want? No. But you will not hunger in that sense. And that's what this table is about. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never push away. It's our choice. This table was the Passover table that night. And as Jesus invited his disciples, so we invite you. And he poured new meaning into the Seder, the Passover meal, which Pesach, which our Jewish friends will be doing here in about a month. And the Passover of God's judgment passed over them Because even as they took the blood of the lentil and the exodus on the doorpost in the sign of a cross, that Christ, we come under the safety and the protection of what he has done for us. This is not a Presbyterian table, but a table for any who look to Christ for salvation. Not your good works, not how much money you've given, what a good boy and girl you are. But you look to him. And only those that are willing to say, I want you to be the Lord of my life, come and partake. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. When you eat this, you remember me. The same way after supper, he took the cup and he poured it out. He said, this is my blood and the new covenant. And as often as you drink this, remember me. When you eat this bread and you drink this cup... Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. God, we thank you that the only meal that can truly fill us up is you. And although this is just a small piece of bread and a little bit of juice, God, we know that these are the things that sustain us. You sustain us. You take care of the hunger that is deep within us. Do that in your people today. Do that in your people forever. In your name, amen.